Welcome back. This is Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. I hope you're doing well this week. We are in week 29 uh, here as we're in the midst of uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 12 this week. This is the week for July 17th through the 23rd. And so we are here in the book of 1 Corinthians, reading Paul's letter to the church there as he's uh, encouraging them uh, uh, giving them instructions on the way they should live, admonishing them, and so on. Paul has this uh, very unique and complex relationship with the church in Corinth, a city known for vice and immorality, um, and yet they are called to be the holy people of God there, uh, just like we are um, as well. So Paul here is writing to the church at Corinth. He's now beginning here, beginning in chapter 7. Remember last week, he begins to deal with specific issues that they had written to him about and that he's they've asked questions about and for instruction, and Paul is giving them that instruction uh, in in the letter. So this week we're in 8 through 12. So we're still in the midst of this. Last week Paul gave them instruction about marriage, and this week he's going to begin giving them instruction with relationship to something that um, maybe sounds a bit weird at first when we read it, but it was the whole question of eating at feasts or food, eating food offered to idols, idol feasts. And um, this was a, a problem uh, in Corinth and and to these these early Christians. And how should we how should we do this? Because um, you know, as we can read here, the meat they there may have been meat that would have been, um, you know, uh, sacrificed or or had been used somehow in uh, idol worship. Um, was it okay for Christians to get that in the marketplace or to eat that or to go participate in such feasts? And what if you are a Christian and you know these things are really not gods? And can you go to can you go participate in those idolatrous uh, those those feasts and go and eat um, at those events? How does that relate to your uh, Christian life? And is what's going to happen to other people around you, other believers especially, who look at you and see you do that? Um, and so Paul here is, is, this was an issue in the church in Corinth. And you can probably look, a good Bible dictionary um, or a basic commentary would give you some more insight than what we can give you through the podcast here into what was going on there. But op- Paul opens up, in uh, chapter 8 and says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so this is going to be uh, a, a big issue. And Paul here is going to begin talking about the actual role of love in the Christian life and with other believers. Paul is going to talk about the fact that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be characterized by love, concern for the well-being of others. And in this context, especially concern for the well-being of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to be considerate of them, to to take notice of them. 
um, and to be aware of them and to respond as we should. And so here, this is what Paul is going to begin talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It actually runs all the way through um, the very beginning of chapter 11, 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Then in chapter 11, he's going to talk about Christian worship uh, uh, with head coverings for women and the Lord's Supper. And then chapter 12, where we will close, we'll read chapter 12 this week, we'll begin a whole section on the spiritual gifts. But throughout all of these topics, Paul is going to highlight the nature of how the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because Christ has died for us and washed us and made us clean and set us free from sin, we are now free to love our neighbors. We are now free to build them up, and that is to be our primary goal and focus. That's what good works are, are according to God's commandments and God's call, and because he saved us, we now love our neighbors. So let's begin diving into some of these passages here. And I want to use, uh, of course, again, the, the Calvin uh, commentary. John Calvin has a commentaries on uh, you know, most of the New Testament and much of the Old Testament. And they're very helpful, and he's got one here on uh, 1 Corinthians. And I want to read from uh, his comments on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, where we read that already. Uh, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love builds up. And so I want to read a section of this to kind of help us uh, kick off this this passage, chapter 8. And um, let's see what he has to say here to us on Calvin's helpful uh, comments upon this passage. Calvin opens up and says, Paul now moves on to another question, which he had merely touched on in chapter 6 without developing it further. For when he had spoken about the greed of the Corinthians and had closed that part of his discussion in that chapter with the sentence, the covetous extortioners, fornicators, etc. shall not inherit the kingdom of God, he had gone on from that to speak of Christian liberty. All things are lawful for me. He had taken the opportunity to pass on from that to deal with fornication and from that to marriage. So at last he follows up the passing reference he had made to in between things to bring out now how our freedom ought to be modified insofar as the in-between things are concerned. By in-between things, I mean things which are neither good nor bad in themselves, but neutral, and which God has given us power to use. Further, we ought to practice moderation in using them, so as to preserve the distinction between freedom and license. He first of all picks out one particular kind in preference to the others, for in this the Corinthians were going seriously wrong. They were attending the religious feasts, which the idol worshippers held in honor of their gods, and were eating indiscriminately of the meats, which were sacrificed to these gods. Since this caused many people to raise their hands in horror, or as you might, I'm, just, I'm throwing this in, as you might be from the, the uh, Northeast, the horror, horror, <laughs> Since this caused many people to raise their hands in horror, uh, horror, the apostle teaches that they are wrong in taking advantage of the freedom which the Lord has granted them. 
So right away, he's saying, what is Calvin saying? He's saying these, he calls these in-between things, these neutral things, these things that are neither good nor bad. Um, And he's talking about how do we use those things where we have freedom to do or not to do something? And there are many different things that we could think about in, in the Christian life that are, they're not neither good, they're not sinful to do, they're not necessarily, you know, the, the best things to do, or maybe, uh, you know, commanded by God, they're just in between. And so how do we live this way? How do we use the freedom that God has given us in our lives and in our everyday lives in order to honor him and to build up our brothers? Calvin continues here for verse 1. Uh, Paul begins by freely granting them a concession, acknowledging whatever they were going to question or find fault with. He might have put it, I am aware of how you justify yourselves. You make the excuse of Christian freedom. You claim that you have knowledge and that not one of your number is so misguided as to be unaware of the fact that there is but one God. I grant all that, that, I grant all that to be true. But what is the use of knowledge which involves the brethren in shipwreck? So he concedes to them what they themselves would assert, but at the same time he makes it plain that their excuses are futile and valueless. So what he's saying is this is the way that they justify themselves. They say, listen, we've got freedom in Christ to do this. We can do whatever we want. We know we have knowledge, and by knowledge, we know that there is only one true God. So these are not really gods. So we can do that. And Paul says, I know that's true, but you might cause your brothers and sisters in the Lord to shipwreck their faith. Their faith, their knowledge may not be as complete as what yours is, or uh, they may not understand it like you do. Paul continues, when, and, and Calvin continues here, sorry, uh, commenting on the Apostle Paul, um, where he says, knowledge puffs up, and Calvin writes this, he shows from the effects just how stupid it is to boast about knowledge when love is absent. He could have expressed himself like this, what is the use of knowledge when all it does is to make us swollen-headed and superior, whereas it is of the very essence of love to edify? This passage, which would otherwise be obscure because of its conciseness, can easily be understood in this way. Anything which lacks even a suggestion of love is worthless in God's sight, is in fact displeasing to him. How much more so anything that openly joins battle with love. But this knowledge about which you about which you Corinthians boast is definitely in the opposite camp to love. For it, feel, for it fills men with arrogance and makes them look contemptuously on their brothers. Love, on the other hand, moves us to concern for our brothers and encourages us to look to their upbuilding. No wonder, I would say, accursed be that knowledge which produces arrogant men and is untouched by a concern for other people's welfare. So Paul here is talking about the fact that Calvin's pointing out is that their knowledge had made given them big heads they were full of themselves, as Luther says in his thing. He says, these people were, were know-it-alls. They thought they knew it all. But that, that attitude had led them to not love their brothers and sisters in the Lord. They were not concerned for the welfare, the good, the edification that their brothers and sisters might be built up. So they were using their love or their knowledge, which puffed them up, And it puffed them up to the point to where they were actually hurting their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul says, this is not, this is not good. This is worthless. 
um, uh, that, that would oppose love, that would go against love. That's a good reminder to us, isn't it? Uh, to me and to you, to all of us, that we want to know God better, but true knowledge of God will always lead us to love our brothers and sisters. It will lead us to humility. It will lead us to be gentle and kind. It will, it will lead us also to, be, uh, to stand firm for the faith when necessary. It will cause us to cling absolutely to the truth and to the right doctrine, and as Paul will call them, the pattern of sound words that we have. We will guard the good deposit entrusted to us. On the other hand, we will also be extremely kind and gracious and and um, long-suffering with those around us. These are not, um, these are not uh, uh, contradictions. They are to be found in the same person, um, the same believer. Calvin continues, Paul, however, did not mean that this fault should be laid at the door of erudition, in the sense that learned people are very often not only smug and vain, but also contemptuous of others at the same time. Again, he did not mean that learning by its very nature breeds arrogance. So what is Calvin saying? That He's saying whenever we read this passage, we mustn't mean that Paul was saying, that doesn't mean you need, that means Paul wasn't saying here that knowledge is bad. That's not what, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that you shouldn't learn or you shouldn't read the Bible or you shouldn't try to know who the Lord is. What Paul is saying, however, is this that Calvin says. He simply wanted to show the effect that knowledge has on men when fear of God and love of the brethren are lacking. For unbelievers do take advantage of all the gifts of God in order to put themselves on a pedestal. Thus, riches, honors, official positions, high birth, good looks, and similar things go to people's heads, for they are, for they are carried away by a misplaced confidence in them and become as arrogant as can be. Of course, it is not always so, for we come across many people who are wealthy, good-looking, weighed down with honors, holding official positions of noble birth, who remain humble people all the same, and have not a scrap of pride about them. But whenever that situation, which we have been describing, does come into being, we ought not to put the blame for it, however, on those things which, all agree, are the gifts of God. In the first place, that would be unfair and stupid. Secondly, in transferring the blame to things which are in fact neutral, we would be letting off the very men who alone are at fault. What I am saying is this, if it is the property of riches to make men proud, even then if a rich man is proud to blame, then if a rich man is proud, no blame can be attached to him for the evil comes from the riches. Therefore, it must be accepted that knowledge is good in itself. But because religion is the one and only basis for it, it becomes a futile, fading thing, so far as unbelievers are concerned, for love is its essential seasoning, and without that, it is ineffectual. Indeed, where there is no sign of that serious knowledge of God, which humbles us and teaches us to be concerned about our brothers, what you discover is something which is imagined to be knowledge rather than knowledge itself, and that even in those who are looked upon as the most learned. But knowledge must no more be blamed for this than a sword for falling into the hands of a madman. This may be said because of certain extremists who furiously protest against all the liberal arts and sciences, as if their only function was to encourage men's pride and had no valuable contribution to make to our everyday life. But those very people who decry them like this are so vociferous in their pride that they are living exemplars of the old proverb, nothing is so arrogant as ignorance. So, 
That's what Calvin is highlighting here, and it's very helpful stuff, I think, because what Paul here is not saying is don't know, don't learn. Paul is not against learning. Paul was, a, was an extremely learned man. But what he is saying is that all of our knowledge needs to be seasoned with love and the fear of God. He says, if it is not seasoned with love and the fear of God, then all knowledge does is puff us up, make us get us big swollen heads, and we actually do more harm than good. On the other hand, people who would say, there there are also those, Calvin points out, that would say, uh, you know, it, it's better to not learn and, and, and that and such, and they would attack all knowledge. And Calvin actually says that there is a proverb, nothing is so arrogant as ignorance. So the problem isn't knowledge. The problem is whenever any of us, whether we are whether we are smart or not so smart or know these things or don't know these things, the, the problem is we're not fearing God and we are full of ourselves. We're arrogant. The problem is with our hearts and we need to have a good dose of reality of who God is again to be reminded of who we really are and to be humbled before his presence and to... Um, to, to, to be brought again to love him and to love our neighbor as ourself. So that's what that's really where Paul starts here, calling them back to humility. Throughout, throughout chapter 8 now, he's going to continue. He says, you know, listen, you're going to destroy the weak person, uh, this brother for whom Christ died. Is that really what you want to do? Is that really what God would have you to do? And then Paul in chapter 9 uses his own example and his own practice as an example of someone who gives up his rights uh, for the sake of others. And then eventually we go here now in uh, verse uh, 23 and 24, Paul says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Calvin says this about Paul's words here. Since the Corinthians get it into their heads that, uh, sorry, since the Corinthians might get it into their heads that what Paul did was something that applied to him alone because of the office he held, he argues in light of what the gospel is aiming at that all Christians share in this. For when he declares that he desired to become a sharer in the gospel, he is hinting that those who do not do as he does are not fit for the fellowship of the gospel. To become a partaker of the gospel is to receive its fruit. Commenting on the next verse, verse 24, Calvin says this, he has finished what he wanted to teach. Now, in order to impress it on the minds of the Corinthians, he adds an exhortation. In short, he says that what they had attained so far is nothing unless they keep steadily on, because it is not enough that they once started off on the way of the Lord if they do not make an effort to reach the goal. This corresponds to the word of Christ in Matthew 10, 22. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And indeed, he borrows a simile from the racetrack. For just as many go down into the arena, but only the man who reaches the goal first receives the crown, so anyone who has once set out on the race to which the gospel summons us has no reason for being pleased with himself unless he keeps going on until death. But our struggle is not like theirs in this way. In their race, only one man, the man who has outstripped all the others, is the winner and obtains the prize. In our case, on the other hand, it is better than that. For many people may receive the crown at once. For all that God demands of us is that we keep pressing strenuously on all the way to the goal. 
So one person does not get in the way of another, but on the contrary, those who run in the Christian race do all they can to help each other. Paul puts the same idea in a different way in 2 Timothy 2.5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So run, Paul. That's what Paul says, right? And Calvin says this. Here we have the application of the comparison. It is not enough that we have made a start if we do not continue to run all through our life. For our life is like the racetrack. Therefore, it will not do for us to grow tired after a little while. For example, halfway. For nothing else but death marks the end of the race. So that's what we are doing. We are to run the race to the end, to death. And Paul here is saying and calling them and saying, listen, what I'm caught, what I did for myself and giving up my own rights, what I did in, in showing love uh, to you and to others. And it, Paul says, right, he, he did not make use of his right to be receiving money for being a, an apostle, right? Because Paul says, you know, it's only appropriate that those who uh, preach the gospel should earn their money that way and, the, and people should support them, get their living by the gospel. Paul says, I didn't make use of that right because I was so concerned that I wanted the gospel to go out, that I was willing to forego the things that I might be considered to be owed to me. And Paul here is saying this to them, you need to practice the same thing. You need to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. And that is what we are doing. We are to run the race. And that race does not stop until we die. Paul is exhorting them to run, to run the race with endurance. And actually, I love that thing that he pointed out there, right? That whenever we run the race together as a church and as believers, far from hindering each other, we actually encourage and help each other in the race. We're not trying to beat each other. We're trying to, in the Christian race, this is a corporate race. We're all trying to help each other make it to the end. So Paul continues to call them and to, and to, uh, to love to love each other and to help each other out, to put their rights aside and instead focus upon love and their duties to one another. He then goes into the Old Testament, which is interesting because he, here again, Paul assumes a unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he uses the Old Testament scriptures to explain to them and to give them an example of something that's happening to them now in the New Testament. And he talks about Moses and the people of Israel. Um, He actually uh, highlights the fact that um, in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Um, He's saying, now listen, you should not be idolaters as they were. So Paul says, you're in the same kind of situation as they were. Uh, Paul is calling them to flee from idolatry, to, to not have anything to do with idolatry. And then later on, he says, beginning of verse 23 of chapter 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let eat, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's what we are called to do. And then later on, Paul says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. It's upon these verses 31 and 32 that I want to give Calvin's uh, comments on this thing again. And this is what Calvin has to say um, about these verses, about whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, 
And Paul says this, or Calvin says this about Paul, Paul's words. He says, so that they may not get the impression that because this is, because this is such a trifling matter, there was therefore no need to be concerned about avoiding censure. Paul teaches that there is no part of our life or conduct, however insignificant, which should not be related to the glory of God, and that we must be concerned in eating and drinking to do all we can to promote it. This sentence agrees with the preceding one, for for if we are zealous for the glory of God, as we ought to be, we will, as far as it lies in our power, prevent his blessings becoming the subjects of abuse. It was well put in the ancient proverb, we must not live to eat, but we must eat to live. So long as the main purpose of life is kept in mind at the same time, the consequence will be that our food will in a sense be consecrated to God, for it will be intended for his honor. Then on verse 32, where Paul talks about give no occasion for stumbling, uh, Calvin writes this, here is the second thing which we ought to be aiming at, the rule of love. Thus, zeal for the glory of God takes the first place, concern for our neighbors the second. Paul mentions Jews and Gentiles, not only because the church of God was made up of these two classes, but in order to show that we owe something to everyone, even to strangers, so that if at all possible, we might gain them. And then upon verse 33, where Paul says, even as I also please all men in all things, Calvin writes this, because Paul is speaking in a general way without making any exceptions, some people wrongly extend this to cover things which are forbidden and against the word of God, as if we had every right in the interest of our neighbors to dare to do more than the Lord allows us. But in fact, nothing could be more certain than that Paul only accommodated himself to men in connection with things which were neutral and in themselves quite permissible. Finally, we must pay attention to the purpose for doing this, that they may be saved. Therefore, no concession ought to be made to them in connection with anything which works against their salvation. But discretion and spiritual discretion at that must be exercised. So the purpose that we aim at in all that we do is the glory of God and the salvation of men. That is to be what we do. And Paul is saying, you Corinthians, you've lost sight of this. You've lost sight of the goal. The goal is to gain people, not to push them aside. The goal is to win people to Christ, to not be an occasion of stumbling. Now, this doesn't mean that we compromise on doctrine. This does not mean that we uh, go soft on what the Bible declares to be sin. But it does mean that whatever we eat or drink, even in the smallest things that we are not to desire or try to, and we are to be aware of ways in which we might be causing other people to stumble. We need to be aware of that. We need to, uh, to, to be aware of that and, and to try to not do that as best we can because that's what love does. Love seeks what's in the best interest of others. Well, Paul continues now in chapter 11 to talk about Christian worship. He talks about women, right? And there's the whole topic of head coverings, which you can read about and, and such like that. There's the whole, uh, and, and, and there's sometimes in that passage, it's kind of vague. And what does it mean? And, and there's been different interpretations given upon that. 
Um, but the point overall seems to be that there is still the, the gospel doesn't destroy the fact that we are still men and women. Uh, the gospel understands that we have uh, that there is only men and women, right? There is uh, there is still a distinction in the church to be made uh, based upon that. And then we go into the Lord's Supper where it seems this church was, was not practicing really what the Lord's Supper was supposed to be. They were uh, practicing, again, not loving each other and not showing uh, glory to God. They were being very selfish and eating apart from one another. They were, they were, some people were going away hungry and Paul calls them back to the, the gospel. He says this in uh, verse uh, 23, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul here is uh, saying, what you've been doing is wrong, and here's what I delivered to you and what, what I received. And he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Here and he goes through what the Lord's words were of institution. How he, how the Lord Himself said, "This bread is my body. This is my body. This is my blood." Um, and these things of, are meant to represent to us, to signify, and to seal to us the truth of Jesus Christ and who He is for us, and all the benefits we get from Him, received through faith alone. But Paul does say that we are to examine ourselves. He says, let a person examine himself then. Now, what does that mean? Uh, have you ever considered that? What does it mean to examine yourself? Because whenever you partake of the Lord's Supper, Paul here clearly says that part of it is that we are to examine ourselves. Um, and, and so what does, that, what does that mean? Paul, what do you mean by that? What am I supposed to do? How do I do this? Well, Calvin has a section here uh, on this these uh, verses here, 28 and 29 of, of uh, chapter 11. And here, let's see what Calvin has to say, uh, which might be helpful for us as we think about how to um, uh, consider how we are to examine ourselves and maybe think about how you can do this with the Lord's Supper whenever we prepare to take it again. Uh, he says this, Calvin does on verse 28. He says, The following exhortation is drawn from the threat that has just been given. If those who eat unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, then let no one approach the table without being well and truly prepared. Let everyone, therefore, take care not to fall into this sacrilege through neglect or indifference. But the question is now asked, when Paul summons us to an examination, what ought the nature of it to be? The papists, and by that Calvin means the, the, what we would call today Roman Catholics, um, the papists think that it consists in auricular confession, uh, 
they order all those who are about to receive the supper to examine their lives carefully and anxiously so that they may unburden all their sins in the ear of a priest. That is their method of preparation. But I myself maintain that the holy examination of which Paul is speaking is far removed from torture. Those people think that they are clear after they have tortured themselves with their thoughts for a few hours and have let the priest into the secret of their shamefulness. It is another kind of examination that Paul requires here, one corresponding to the proper use of the Holy Supper. Very important right away. Paul says this, to examine yourself does not mean to sit around and torture yourself with your sins. That is what he says the Roman Catholics at his time, and I would assume still today, uh, encourage um, that you are to examine your, your, to confess your sins to the priest. But but Paul here um, in, excuse me, John Calvin here is saying that's not what Paul meant. Paul wasn't saying that we're supposed to torture ourselves for a few hours and to just totally unburden ourselves to a human priest. We have a priest in heaven. Um, you may have known the, the hymn, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while he in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. We have a priest in heaven who ever lives to intercede for us. So we look to him as our priest and our savior and our Lord. And we can unburden our souls to the Lord Jesus Christ, our priest, any and all times. There is a need for confession. There is a great need for confession, actually. But it is not... Um, it is not to a human ear that we must give all of these things to. Now, of course, at certain times, public sins, we need to confess those to people that we have wronged and to repair a relationship with other people, or maybe we do need it to help us hold, be held accountable at certain instances in our lives. But overall, Private sins are to be confessed privately to the great high priest who can heal us and forgive us. And uh, that's who we are to pray to. And so Calvin here is saying, that's not the kind of examination, though, that we're talking about with the Lord's Supper. What does Paul mean then? So let's read Calvin again to get his commentary on what this means. Calvin says this, this is the quickest or easiest method of preparation for you. If you want to derive proper benefit from this gift of Christ, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, you must bring faith and repentance. Therefore, so that you may come well prepared, the examination is based on those two things. Under repentance, I include love, for there is no doubt that the man who has learnt to deny himself in order to devote himself to Christ in his service will also give himself wholeheartedly to the promotion of the unity which Christ has commended to us. Indeed, it is not perfect faith or repentance that is asked for, This is said because some people, by being far too insistent upon a perfection which cannot be found anywhere, are putting a barrier between every single man and woman and the supper forever. But if you are serious in your intention to aspire to the righteousness of God, and if, humbled by the knowledge of your own wretchedness, you fall back on the grace of Christ and rest upon it, be assured that you are a guest worthy of approaching this table By saying that you are worthy, I mean that the Lord does not keep you out, even if in other respects you are not at all, you you are not all you ought to be. For faith, even if imperfect, 
makes the unworthy worthy. You notice what he's saying there? You keep your eyes on Christ. Are you looking to Jesus Christ? Are you, have you turned away your eyes and your desires from those things of this world to him? Are you falling back upon and resting upon the grace, the favor, the free love that Jesus Christ promised you? Is that where you're just resting and going to let him do all the saving and let you receive all the saving? If that's you and you've, you, you're trying, you want to walk in a life of holiness to God, however imperfectly, but you're casting yourselves, you're just letting him do the job of, of Savior, well then, he accepts you. Come to the table. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. This is my body, which was broken for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive it. So the Lord's Supper, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, is a giving and receiving of these elements of bread and the cup, whereby we uh, signify and seal to our minds this great love and forgiveness that he has towards us. Um, that's what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a means of grace, not a means of torture, not a means of, of figuring out, have I done enough to come to the table? It's also not a means whereby I, I assure myself that I am good enough. It's not a means whereby I look at it and say, yeah, I can take this, but you know, no one else can because no one else is really devoted to the Lord like I am. It is a means of grace whereby through the giving and the receiving of bread and the cup, we are reminded of his unconditional, unflinching, unfailing love towards us that flowed down the tree, the cross of Calvary. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what Calvin's reminding us of. So, um, Let's continue on here in verse 29, however. He says this about he who eats unworthily, eats judgment to himself. Uh, Calvin writes this. Paul had already clearly pointed out the seriousness of the offense in saying that those who eat unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now he is giving them cause for alarm by the threat of punishment. For many people are not disturbed by the sin itself, but only if they are visited by the judgment of God. So that is what Paul is doing when he declares that this food, which is otherwise beneficial, will be turned into poison and cause the destruction of those who eat unworthily. Paul adds the reason for this, namely because they do not discern the Lord's body as something that is holy and not common. What he means is that they handle the sacred body of Christ with unclean hands, and worse, they eat it as if it were worthless, giving not a thought to its great value. They will therefore pay the penalty for desecrating it so much. But let my readers bear in mind that what, that what I said a little ago, that the body of Christ is offered to them, even if their unworthiness prevents them from sharing in it. So Christ is offered to us. The gospel is offered to us um, again and again and again. We hear it with our ears all the time, but then there's a special sense again in which 
we as believers are commanded, people who have been baptized, who are believers resting and receiving upon Jesus Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel, and, and we look to him, this gospel again is, in a sense, offered to us again through the Lord's Supper. It's another means by which God reminds us of his great promises towards us and of his love towards us and that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it's about. So Paul reminds them of what this is for and how to examine themselves. He calls them to practice the Lord's Supper in the right way. And then beginning in chapter 12, he turns his attention to another topic. Uh, Chapter 12 says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, that's what he's saying, right? Concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about the diversity that's found in the body of Christ. Uh, God has placed us in different places within the body of Christ with different giftings. And, but we're supposed to, in our diversity in the local church, we are to help each other out. That diversity is a great blessing um, because, as Paul says in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We are each of us given a, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given to each of us, and the Holy Spirit works in each of us in unique ways, but he doesn't do it simply so that we can boast in ourselves, but he does it so that we can serve others in the church. So Paul continues to talk about the fact that we are the body of Christ. He says this in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is what Calvin has to say. Uh, This is our last reading here today upon this passage here where we talk about how um, you are the body of Christ and individually uh, members, members of it. Let me turn to it right here. Yes, verse 27. Calvin writes this. It follows that all that has been said about the nature and characteristics of the human body ought to be applied to us. For we are are not just a civil society, but having been engrafted into the body of Christ, we really are members one of another. Therefore, every one of us should realize that whatever whatever his gift, it has been given to him for the upbuilding of all the brethren. With that in mind, he should devote it to the common good and not suppress it burying it within himself, so to speak, or use it as if it were his private possession. A man who stands out because he has greater gifts should not become swollen-headed and look down upon others, but he should ponder the fact that there is nothing so insignificant that there is no use for it. To take an example, even the least significant of believers does in fact bear fruit relative to his slender resources, so that there is no such person as a useless member of the church. Those who are not blessed with such great distinction should not envy those who are superior to them, nor refuse to obey them, but they should keep the position in which they have been placed. Let there be love for each other, sympathy with each other, and consideration for each other. Let it be the common good that influences us, so that we may not ruin the church by spite or jealousy or pride or any discord, but let every single person rather devote all his energy to its consecration. This is a rich and splendid theme, but I have confined myself to pointing out how the preceding analogy ought to be applied to the church. So that is what we are as the church, right? The Lord's Supper is this thing reminding us of what we share in common in the body of Christ. We share him. 
We share his promises. We share the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Lord. Each of us have a common share in him. And he is ours together. And now in him, we are put into him. And therefore, the life we now live as a local church is pulsating with the spiritual life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is happening whether or not we can see it or not. We are members of one another, and there is no such thing, as Calvin points out, as a useless member. Some of us may feel uh, we're not doing anything for the kingdom, or sometimes we go through stages, and sometimes we may get down, and, um, or maybe we get, we get too big of a head, or we forget other people. Maybe we forget other people in the church, or we forget the, the wonderful uh, benefits and the great gifts that each person is in this church. Um, that is a that is a danger, and and what Paul here is saying: each of us are members of Christ, and we are the body of Christ together. And and really, I think the great thing to be reminded of is is it's not even the gifts that are really the greatest thing in the church; it's the people who are the greatest gift in the church, isn't it? Um, Paul is, I think, uh, emphasizing not simply really that more than having a spiritual gift, it's being a spiritual person. That's the most important thing. And it's about being in the body of Christ, loving one another for Christ's sake and being reminded of that cross because the cross is the greatest thing to kill all of our pride, <laughs> to kill all of our selfishness, to kill all of our, of our loneliness, to kill all of that and to raise up anew by the power of his resurrection. Um, uh, a new love, a new community, the common good in our local church. That's what we want to be here at MNBC. That's what we should be striving for, shouldn't we? And that's what we want to be. And that's what he's calling the church here in Corinth to be. Well, that's all I've got for you this week. Um, next week, we will continue. We're going to wrap up 1 Corinthians. We will uh, introduce 2 Corinthians. We'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 next week. Um, should be good, and we're going to be, again, next week talking about the love chapter, spiritual gifts, the resurrection, um, and so on. It should be a, it should be a fun time as we continue to read through uh, these uh, epistles, these letters that Paul wrote. Well, thank you for listening to this. I hope it's been uh, helpful, and uh, take care, and God bless. <music>